Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. The following podcast is taken again from emails that have been sent in on the Ask Me Anything request. I also want to mention for our friends in the Melbourne area, or if you're going to be in the Melbourne area in the coming months, we're going to be having Dharma Dialogues about an hour from Melbourne on the beautiful Mornington Peninsula on Sunday afternoons, the last four Sundays of the coming four months. And that schedule is on our website. So it's August, September, October, and November of 2022. So our first email question comes from Dan. In the Buddhist Eightfold Path, they discuss the understanding of right view. In respect to how we make our way mindfully through our day, how would you explain the right view or perspectives to be mindful of within awareness? Would this vary at all depending on the stage of one's practice? Well, right view, uh, yes, it is sort of, it sort of undergirds the rest of the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view would include, for instance, the Four Noble Truths. So there's the Eightfold Noble Path, and then there's the Four Noble Truths. And the right view would be the understanding of the fact of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness, the First Noble Truth, and understanding the causes and the way out. That's basically the Four Noble Truths in a nutshell. The way out being the Eightfold Noble Path. So right view, though, would also understand things like impermanence and having the strong intention to not cause suffering through your your actions and your deeds. Basic Dharma principles. Right view is not some particular prescribed list, really. It's, in my way of seeing, it's essentially seeing with eyes that are less and less clouded with delusion and confusion. So it's really about insight and clear seeing. And to your question, does it vary depending on the stage of one's practice? Well, yes, it deepens. It's not that it necessarily radically changes, but it does deepen with time and with clear seeing. The view becomes more and more clear. It's said that when the Buddha began teaching, this is in the Buddhist lore, that when he began teaching, someone, maybe one of his students, said to him, Master, don't you think that this Dharma is too subtle, too subtle for people to understand? These are two, you know, ephemeral concepts for most people. And it is said that the Buddha answered, but there are those who have little dust on their eyes. So with little dust on the eyes, one can apprehend the concepts. And then as you begin experimenting with those concepts, those those views in your own life, your understanding and your commitment to those views deepens with time until it becomes truly second nature. Right view right view, born of insight. Our next question comes from T. When I was listening to your last podcast, I really resonated with your phrase, 
a commitment to goodness, and a coming back to being kind and helpful in our own local little world. Recently, I helped a friend with a home project that took quite a lot of my time. I was happy to do it and felt satisfied with the result. However, some of my friends criticized me for being too involved with this person's affairs and said that I was behaving in codependent ways and being taken advantage of. It seems the idea of service can be challenged as being naive and a distraction from one's own life issues, but I feel inclined to help those in need. Am I avoiding looking at myself? Well, only you know the answer to that question, but to answer this in a more generic way, service is, <laughs> is, is one of the most beautiful ways to spend time in this world of all the things to be doing here. <laughs> Rabindranath Tagore, the Nobel Prize winning Indian poet and writer, and philosopher, he said, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted, and behold, service was joy. Now, in your question, you seem to say that you were happy in this action, that you acted, and behold, service was joy. Many, many, many people discover this. This is not a secret. And yet, we're in a time of such extreme narcissism, that's the accepted norm, that one could end up being criticized for helping a friend. That is the time we live in. Now, I'm not saying that you're not codependent. Maybe you are. Maybe you sometimes overdo it. Some people do. They they are so at the ready and putting their own needs aside that they end up kind of turning into a basket case because they've expended way too much energy on everyone else. That does happen. One has to take care of oneself in order to be a caretaker. So there's that. Let's leave that aside and let's assume that that's not the case for you. But that rather you're dealing with perhaps a community or a groupthink that is all the rage, which is an obsession with me first and me only. So uh, this narrative has to be challenged, and it's difficult to challenge it because of the PC police that we have to live with now. It's difficult to challenge any of the narcissistic narratives for fear of all kinds of criticism and perhaps even being so-called canceled. One has to be strong and live by your own values. One of the ways that you might consider looking at this issue is perhaps confidence in standing up to these friends. <laughs> that it may be that's where the attention should be that if you're hanging out with a group of people who don't think service is a good idea, is this really your tribe? Are these really the people you feel most comfortable with? And if they are, at least can one speak up and say, that's pretty ridiculous, I'm helping a friend. <laughs> right? 
This is an act of compassion. You've heard of that, right? You could say something like that. I am more and more feeling that we're going to have to start speaking up and speaking out about the nonsensical narratives that we are being forced to live with. I see that, I see these nonsensical narratives as the real threat, not people who are in service, but the threat that we face being distracted with all of these silly things when the world is burning and when we have threats of war at the level we now do and when we have crises that are just intersecting and going faster than any of us can keep track of. People are really fiddling while Rome burns. Service is going to be more and more needed, and we're going to need to have more and more people's hearts open and willing to do this. We certainly don't need any criticism for being of service. Our final question comes from Ida. She says, A friend whom I have known for almost 50 years has started to have severe memory problems. Her husband is kind and tries his best, but in the past months, my friend has dwindled rapidly. Recently, I spent time with her and we had a lovely day, but it is hard to see her confusion and frustration. For example, when she wanted to make coffee and simply couldn't manage to do it. All her wisdom, years of insight and life experiences seem to be gone now that dementia has taken over. Where does Dharma understanding go once we suffer from dementia? Yes, very poignant. And it's something I think many of us have thought about and wondered about my own experience in in knowing some people who are experiencing degenerative brain issues over time varies quite a bit. I hear that with brain changes, depending on the area of the brain that's being affected, there can be severe personality changes. And of course, there can be just simply a loss of most of what you knew. Uh, One somewhat encouraging story, I suppose, is there was a Cambodian monk named Mahagosananda, who I met only once or twice many years ago. I think he died at least uh, more than a decade ago, I believe, at an old age. And I heard that he was suffering from some some degenerative brain situation. I, I also heard that even though he couldn't really cognize in the same way he had, he still knew, he could still chant the suttas. Some people would say sutras. Sutras is the Sanskrit version. Uh, Suttas is typically used in the Theravadan school of Buddhism, which it's a Pali word, similar. He could still chant the suttas, and he would kind of light up when students would ask him a Dharma question. He could kind of respond. So something was still intact, or some habitual way of perceiving was coming through, which would make a case for having that as a strong habit. In others' cases, like in the case of my father, 
who had Parkinson's, but then we think he also had Lewy body, which is another brain degeneration that comes sometimes with Parkinson's. And what was interesting in the case of my father was he got very sweet and childlike, but very, very loving and just kind and sweet. I mean, he was a good man before that, but it's almost like just it came down to just this essence of very simple beingness in a very loving way when he could no longer properly cognize anything. Who knows with any of this? It's going to be case by case, no doubt. But you asked, where does the Dharma go? Well, the the Dharma doesn't go anywhere, but the brain does go. (laughs) There's no guarantee that just because one has had tremendous insight and wisdom and perception and, you know, a lightning fast way of cognizing Dharma, that that is going to last. Just as there's no guarantee about anything. Everything is impermanent. Death takes us all. So I would say it makes the case for enjoying whatever insight, wisdom, clear seeing, love, all the all the things that make life worth living. Enjoy that while we have it. I have some Dharma friends also who are struggling with memory loss and different ways that there's a handicap now mentally. And yet I do see with many of them that their sweetness and their general goodness are well intact. But that's not really a guarantee. That really isn't. I also lived, of course, through the AIDS crisis when it was really intense in the 80s and early 90s uh, before there was good medications. And um, one of the things that people struggled with was that with Carposis sarcoma that would come with AIDS sometimes, there would be such extreme personality changes that I heard that some of the men who committed suicide did so because they didn't want to be remembered in these ways that their personality was changing. I mean, for, probably for other reasons as well. It's, it's a horrible disease to live with, but I did hear of a couple of cases of people who committed suicide rather than go through losing all of their friends, turning everyone against them because they couldn't really control their own personality and lashing out. So we have to accept some very bitter pills in in life. As I spoke earlier in this podcast, the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, you can't have any kind of permanent happiness in an impermanent reality. That's just the what's so. And one of the things we might have to face is the diminishment of our brains. That's if we live long enough, that is almost a guarantee. Not that you're necessarily going to lose your brain entirely, lose your ability to have a neurological function entirely, but a lot of people, most people I'd say when they get to advanced age, do have 
loss in that regard. I'd also say that this is a very humbling thing, particularly like to say this for younger people. And I say this having once been a younger person, uh, even yesterday. But when I was young, I would sometimes get frustrated with older people telling the same story or not realizing that you've already told them something and they're asking you the same thing or, you know, just ways that one is a kind of mental hotshot when we're young. And pride goes before a fall, as they say. So I would just also caution in that regard that we find patience and compassion as best we can, as best we can, but just sort of lean into that idea. When you're with someone who's struggling, you know, they may have been a genius in their own right, just as you might be a genius in your own right at this time, but maybe not later. With so many abilities, some of the world's greatest athletes, people who could run, who won gold medals in the Olympics in track and who now use walkers to get around. It's all very humbling, this process. And you can let that be a good thing. A good thing in that these are all ways of letting go. Letting go of that which goes. And not needing to have any story that something is going to protect you. Whether it was your immersion in Dharma or all your brain supplements that you took or whatever it is. It may be that we let go of, of even the ability to recognize our loved ones. I know it's an incredibly scary and painful thought. I know that. It is for me as well, but all of the things I've had to let go of, and there are a lot, I've had to let go of, well, they were taken, I should say, they, they went. And I've had to make peace with that in my heart. And I hope that you and I and all who are listening do understand that we're very fragile creatures loaded with emotion. <laughs> it's an incredible combination. Loaded with emotion and extraordinarily vulnerable to all kinds of all kinds of losses. The more you sit on your own mountain seat of freedom, the clearer this will become. And even though you get more and more sensitive, you strangely also get stronger, stronger in your ability to move with the winds of change. This has been In the Deep. I'd like to mention to our friends in the Victoria region that we're going to be having live sessions on the last Sunday of August, September, October and November 2022 on the Mornington Peninsula, which is about an hour from Melbourne by car. The information for that is on our website, katherineingram.com. Till next time. <laughs>